This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. It's the afternoon of the 7th of September 1956, a patchy but warm day, and three schoolboys are out for a cycle ride in their local countryside. As they bike up Green Lane, a remote road near Leverstock Green in Hertfordshire, they see something suspicious. They think it's so odd that one of the boys, quick-thinking 14-year-old Alan Clark, pulls out a pad and pen and begins to take notes. Later, these notes become a diary entry, and that entry is published in newspapers up and down the country as four photographs of pages written in Alan's hand. Paraphrased slightly for clarity, these pages read, On Friday the 7th, two friends and myself went for a cycle. We went up Wood Lane and turned right, and then left at the crossroads. We went up the hill, and just further up the road, we passed a car. The back door facing the road was open. The car was on the grass verge. We heard some twigs crack in the bushes. We turned around to look, and saw a man throwing a coat over something on the top of something else. We went past, and stopped at the top of the hill. We took the car number, which was SUU. 138. He came out of the bushes and shut the back door, opened the front door and brung something round out that glittered in the sun. He placed this thing in the opposite side of the road where the coat was and came out and did not have it with him. He then got into the car, closed the door and drove away. Then we all put our bikes in the bushes and went to the spot where we found the murdered lady. We went to Leverstock Green and found a policeman by the Free Church. We told him, and showed him where the body was, and he convinced us she was dead, and to go to Leverstock Green and phone for the police. The man was about fifty, Italian-looking, wearing horn-rimmed glasses and going grey at the side of his head. He wore a blue suit with pinstripes and kid gloves. Presently, just a small piece of DNA evidence left at a scene can be enough to find and convict a murderer. But on that September day of 1956, there would be at least ten witnesses who could describe the distinctive look of the killer and his car. But despite the evidence, the man who killed 36-year-old Diana Sutty has never been found. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Normally, near the start of an episode, I like to give you as much information about the victim as I can, but I couldn't find much out about Diana's early life. I know she was born Diana Morgan, but there is no record of her parents' names or where she lived growing up. In a news article entitled Boy Detective Searches for a Murderer, there's a single line, sandwiched between talk of her two husbands, that mentions she met her first while serving in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, more commonly known as WAF during World War II. 
It then goes on to tell us that she married Sidney Ledger, who was serving in the Royal Navy during the year of 1944. But by 1949, that marriage had dissolved, and by the end of the year, they had legally divorced. Personally, I'd be more interested to know about Diana's life. The WAF, while not involved in the actual flying of planes, were instrumental in preparations for flight, maintenance of aircrafts and ground operations, including working with codes and ciphers, and analysing reconnaissance photos. These are important, clever jobs, but we don't get to hear about this side of Diana. What we do hear about her independent nature isn't framed as a positive. It's to illustrate what one article calls, in bold text, the wild Diana. Under that headline, her second husband's father tells a paper that she was always changing jobs. Though there are no specifics, and the most I can find from any source is that at the time of her death she was working as a nurse. It's likely, of course, that she would have had to have changed jobs recently, because despite the fact that she'd only married her second husband, Charles William Sutty, on Christmas Eve of 1955, by June the 3rd of 1956, they had separated and both moved back in with their parents. Charles to Kenton and Diana to Pinner Road in Harrow, about four miles away. This relocation and the upheaval in her life may well have resulted in a change of employment for Diana. At the inquest into her death, Charles Sutty told of meeting his wife by chance one day in a Harrow tobacconist's and said, I fell in love with her right away. She was an attractive woman, and during our courtship she never showed any signs of the bad temper I knew after we were married. I can't find out exactly what Mr Sutty meant when referring to Diana's bad temper. Certainly they argued both during the marriage and after June the 3rd when they were separated. At the time of Diana's death, Charles was 28 years old, eight years younger than her, and he's described in the papers as a cripple, though I can't find out what that means exactly. He's tall and slim and very pale looking. In their wedding photo, he stands slightly on an angle to Diana and looks thin in comparison to her. She has a plump face, dark eyebrows and what is probably dark red lipstick. She looks like she's nearing middle age, but doesn't look drawn. There's something beautiful about her. Not in the traditional sense, but in the vitality of her stance and expression. When I first see the picture, her face reminds me of a series of photographs I studied once called Café Limits. If you know any of the works, it will probably be the front cover of Tom Waits's 1985 album Rain Dogs. But there's not just that one photo. The series was taken over a period of three years in Hamburg, as photographer Anders Peterson documented the café's regular customers. These were heavy drinkers, prostitutes and down-and-outs, but they're not sad photos. He's captured something energetic, sometimes frenzied but incredibly human. And I'm not saying that Diana was any of those things, but it's how she looks in their wedding photo. As if she could step out of the frame. As if she'd always be the most alive person in any room. (laughs) 
On Friday the 7th of September, 1956, at around 2.15 in the afternoon, Diana Sutty was drinking a cup of tea in one of her regular haunts, the Crow's Nest, a trucker cafe which stood on Watling Street between Markiate and Redbourne, about 20 miles away from where she was living in Harrow. The owner's wife, Doran Cottrell, spoke to her as she poured the tea, and Diana was happy. She'd just won £4 betting on the dogs, which in modern money is almost £100. Diana and Doran gossiped for a while and played the jukebox, until around 2.30, perhaps slightly before, when Diana got up to leave. It's at this point that some of the details in the case become a little confused. To begin with, police believed that she hitched a lift from the Crow's Nest Cafe with the man who just half an hour later would be seen dumping her body on Green Lane. They started their investigation by patrolling the trunk roads of Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire and Northamptonshire, where they stopped hundreds of motorists and asked them the questions, Have you seen this woman before? Have you ever given her a lift? Have you seen her with a foreign-looking man? They were hunting for a specific car, a new model two-toned Rover, but soon they began to suspect that Diana had received not one lift, but two. First being picked up in the Rover from the Crow's Nest and dropped in a lay-by just a short distance down the A5. From there, she was picked up by a different man, one who wore horn-rimmed glasses, a pinstriped suit and kid gloves who took the next turning down Hog End Lane, only a few metres from the lay-by where Diana waited. It's not known whether or not she had a date with the man in kid gloves, but the fact that she was dropped in a lay-by suggests she didn't. She'd been at a cafe just off of the main road, a perfect place to arrange a meeting, but she didn't do that. To me, it seems likely that she was attempting to get back to her parents' home in Harrow, because to do so, she'd have needed to turn off of the A5 at Hogend Road and head towards Leverstock Green, very close to where her body was found. Anyone who's ever hitchhiked will know that the easiest way to get a lift will be to stand somewhere prominent, with space for a car to pull over. Where Diana stood is on a long, clear stretch of road, and actually, there's still a lay-by there today, almost exactly where it would have been in 1956. You can see a fair distance in either direction, and if you're thumbing a lift, then cars have plenty of time to see you and stop. If this was the case, though, then she was picked up almost immediately by her killer, who was driving a medium grey or grey-blue saloon car. We know this because the first sighting of the two of them together occurred at around 2.45pm, just 15 minutes after it was reported that she left the cafe, an eight-minute drive away from that lay-by. And here begins the strangest part of Diana's story. two sightings of Diana and the unknown man reported very close together. Chronologically, if certain disturbing facts are to be believed, it makes more sense that the sighting of farmer Trevor Owen comes first. At around 2.45pm, 
he saw a woman and a man sitting together in a car stopped on Hog End Lane. He didn't see the man's face, but it's believed that they were in the back seat at the time. It's also believed that this could be when the murder was taking place, in the back seat of a car, in broad daylight, in front of a farmer. The second sighting comes almost immediately after the first, when Frieda Fitzjohn, wife of the head cowman at Kettlewell's farm, her two young children and dog Susan, were out walking in the lane and the killer's car approached going far too fast. Because of Susan, who was bounding up ahead on the road, she waved the car to slow down and it stopped. She saw a woman and a man in horn-rimmed glasses. She grabbed Susan and said, I'm very sorry, but the man didn't respond, and neither did the woman, who sat there silently with a pink and white dotted scarf wrapped tightly around her neck, a twisted smile on her half-turned face. As the car pulled away fast, Frida saw the woman's head turn to one side, as if she was watching her. But she wasn't watching, because by this time Diana Sutty was already dead, strangled with her own scarf, and now propped upright in the passenger side of the Kid Glove Killer's car. If this were the last sighting of the two of them together, then it would have been more than enough evidence to believe that the police should have been able to find the killer. Frida Fitzjohn was able to give a good description of the man driving, and Trevor Owen the make of the car. But of course it wasn't the last sighting, even forgetting boy detective Alan Clark and his friends. Because at 2.50pm, two more teenage boys saw the car parked up on the lane, and then again at 2.55, 23-year-old tobacconist Bill Steers came face to face with the car as he was driving down Green Lane, the road on which Diana's body would be concealed under a coat and a hedge. There was no room for the two cars to pass on the narrow road, and so the killer had to mount the verge, and as he drove past, Bill Steers again saw the man with the horn-rimmed glasses and his female companion. He looked annoyed, and so Bill asked him if he was okay, and the man said, I'm all right. The woman did not respond, and again, Bill did not realise that she was already dead. Five minutes later, Alan Clark and his friends would be hiding on the top of the hill the killer must have just driven down, taking notes as he disposed of her half-clothed body, and the evidence described as something round that glittered in the sun, which Alan thought was perhaps her bag, though we've never been told for sure. And all of this happened on a half-overcast but warm Friday afternoon, in broad daylight during the first full week of September. On Friday the 25th of May, in weather not dissimilar to that of the day Diana was killed, Gemma and I take the two-hour drive to Marquiate in Hertfordshire. We start our recorded journey just past the site of the old Crow's Nest Cafe, which in the 50s was no more than a couple of large sheds, and no longer exists in that form today. But if you want to know where it was, it was just past the Watling Street truck stop, which does still exist set on a road a little back from the main route into London. A lot of the area has changed since Diana's day. I spoke about this in my first episode, 
but Hertfordshire is too close to London to have remained rural the further south you go. And what were once small country lanes like Green Lane where her body was found have become much larger. No longer one-track country roads, but tarmacked and clearly marked, well-kept routes. As we start retracing Diana's last ride, I'm a bit disappointed. I like to be able to get a feel for an area, and imagine how it was almost 62 years ago, but so much has changed and built up that it's difficult to do so. Until we pass the small lay-by near Hog End Lane, and take a sharp right turn onto the road itself, a single track, high-banked lane with views over rolling fields and farmland. I stand right in the middle of the road to take some Polaroids without seeing a single car. As a matter of fact, we don't pass a car until we reach Green Lane and the Buntsfield fuel depot, the site of a huge explosion back in 2005. At one point, over the road is a brutalist cream concrete tunnel, and thundering on top is the M1. But except for that... Down on the lane, it's like we've never left the past at all. We're still there with farmer's wife, Frieda Fitzjohn, walking Susan and her children, as they pass the killer and Diana's twisted face. The same cannot be said for Green Lane. There's a photograph of Alan Clark, notebook and pen in hand, in the middle of the road, taken in the month after the murder. He's wearing Wellington boots, slick, side-combed hair, and a serious expression, and you can see that the lane is no more than a narrow, single track, bordered by thickets and scrub. Now it's roundabout after roundabout until you reach Hemel Hempstead and Leverstock Green, and there's no sign of the place where Diana's body once lay. coming to the end of Diana's story now. But before I finish the episode, I want to talk a little about my theories. When researching and discovering all the facts of the case, it's almost impossible to understand how no one can have been arrested. There was a car, a number plate, a good description of a distinctive killer which circulated nationally in the press. It seems as if it would be an easy rap, but it wasn't that simple. When police checked the number plate that Alan Clark had jotted down, it turned out to belong to a milk float and have nothing to do with the crime. Forces didn't stop there, though. They tried to search the whole country for the car by scouring hundreds and thousands of similar numbered plates, thinking perhaps SUU-138 was SUV or 133 or any other variation on that. But no matter what they tried, they still couldn't identify the saloon car or its driver. There's one article, which is an interview with comedian Arthur Askey, who tells of how he was interviewed by police because he looked like the killer and had a similar car and number plate. He says, I suddenly went into a cold sweat. I couldn't remember where I was at the time of the murder. He goes on to describe the car and the appearance of the murderer and says... That's me to a T, before adding, I am of course completely in the clear. I was just one of the thousands who have been interviewed. But here is the problem with this case. There's so much information about the suspect, and such a clear timeline of events, and yet all we can say after all this research is that Arthur Askey was not Diane Sutty's killer. 
but he might still be as good as anyone else the police interviewed. It seems to me that in part the investigation into this case is flawed because of the fixation on Diana's life and personality. There were implications as to what it meant that she had many male friends, and she seems to fall foul of the strict, conservative standards for how a woman should conduct herself. When I think about the facts of the case, if she was dropped in that A5 lay-by at 2.40 that day, there seems to be only a couple of possibilities. The first is that she was meeting a man, and for some reason she'd chosen to do so in a lay-by, even though to pick her up there, a car would have to be coming from the crow's nest direction anyway. The second is that it was a chance pickup, and she just got very unlucky. Maybe he wanted something from her sexually, and when she refused and fought back, he strangled her to death. Perhaps he'd been a customer in the crow's nest, and liked what she'd played on the jukebox. It doesn't sound as if whoever it was committed the crime for the money she'd won that day. His car was only three years old, and his suit's expensive. So maybe he heard her music, and followed her to the car park where he saw her get a lift, and get out of that car just a couple of miles up the road. And maybe he took his chance and tried something sexual, and she resisted and he strangled her. There's a reason there aren't many murders committed in broad daylight by the side of the road with at least ten witnesses. Almost never is a crime so brazen premeditated. There's every chance that he didn't mean to kill her until he was in the process of doing so, or after the act had occurred. Then he panicked, and dumped her body as soon as he could, and wherever he could. To me, it seems incredibly unlucky for him, and incredibly sad for vivacious and impulsive Diana, that no one could be brought to justice for her murder. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Outlines podcast. If you want to give your opinion and discuss Diana's story with myself and others, then you can come and join us in the Outlines podcast discussion group on Facebook, where we exchange theories about the cases covered. I've got a previous case update following in a moment. But first, I'd like to say thank you to my latest Patreon supporter, Robert DeCastro. I'm so grateful for his and everyone's contribution to the show, whether financial or just through commenting on iTunes or other podcast providers. It really does help to boost rankings and encourage new listeners. Also, the competition is still open to win a Polaroid photo taken at Broken Green, the site of Helen Hooper's disappearance, and it's extended to cover anyone who gives at any Patreon tier level from the beginning of May until June the 15th. Thanks to those as well who have filled out the survey I mentioned in my last episode. It's still open for anyone to take, and I'll leave a link to it, along with all my other social media details in the information box below. I'm starting to incorporate a little in the way of theories into my episodes, and this is because of your feedback, so please keep it coming. Lastly, I want to share my case update with you all. I've posted about it on social media, but for those who don't follow me, there's been a breakthrough of sorts on the case of Chris May from Kelvedon in Essex, which I covered in my first ever episode of the show. 
You'll remember that his car was found abandoned on a remote bridleway near the small Essex village of Fairstead, and that despite massive police searches, he was never found. But just last week, almost three years to the day since he went missing, police announced that a couple who were out walking found his body concealed in woodland, just two miles away from Fairstead, near a place called Troy's Farm at the village of Falkbourne. The inquest opened, and was adjourned last week as they've not yet been able to identify his cause of death. But from reports, it seems as if he's been there the whole time, just outside of the police search radius. As sad for his family as this discovery must be, I'm hopeful that with his body can come some evidence, even after a few years, and that it will kick-start the investigation into Chris's death by probable murder, and it may yet one day be solved. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input by Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 